today's brilliant guest is responsible for what can probably be described as one of London's absolute best kept secrets, the London Metropolitan Archive. Jeff Pick is director of this amazing London-based resource. Just imagine over 100 kilometers of archives jam-packed full of amazing historical and contemporary material with over a thousand years to choose from. Well, that's Jeff's job. Jeff is an adopted Londoner from Wigan and he was recently awarded an OBE for services to the management of records and archives in the capital. He joined the LMA in 86 and became director in 2013, having worked as a professional archivist since 78. Under his direction, the LMA has played a pioneering role in areas such as digital archiving, engaging with the public and promoting diversity through work with the LGBTQ and BAME communities. In this fascinating episode, Jeff explains his love and passion for his work and takes us through some of his LMA's most outstanding archive material from the city's Magna Carta in 1297, the collection for John Keats, an amazing character called Cy Grant, right bang up to date with a digital collection of the National HIV Story Trust and work with the LGBTQI communities. When lockdown is over, the first thing I'm going to try and do is get myself down to the LMA, and you should too. Meanwhile, be inspired and enjoy my chat with Jeff Pick. I'm Steve Lazarus, and this is Your London Legacy. I've got a special offer for you. Regular listeners to the podcast will know that at the end of each interview, we ask our guests to tell us one or two of their favourite places in London that is personal to them and perhaps not everybody knows about. Well, I've now compiled for you 60 of my guests' favourite places in London, and you can get this unique brochure 100% free. Alongside each guest recommendation is a brief quote explaining why they love the place, a lovely picture of it, plus links to the venue and the podcast episode itself so you can check it out in your own time. It's completely free and all you have to do is go to www.yourlondonlegacy.com on the homepage and click on the red button where it says guests' favourite places in London. Click here for your free copy. I hope you enjoyed as much as I did creating it for you. Keep listening. Best wishes and keep safe. Steve. Well, I'm absolutely delighted today to have on the podcast Jeff Pick. Jeff is the director, I think you're presently director, of the London Metropolitan Archive, which should be probably better known or more, more widely known than it is. I don't know, maybe you, you tell me how popular it is, but it is an amazing resource for Londoners and around the world alike. And I'm feel privileged in many respects to have you on the podcast today. So thank you very much for joining us, Jeff. How are you doing? Doing very well. Thanks, Steve. And I think if I had a pound for every time people came and said, I never knew you existed, but you're amazing, I'd be a wealthy man. But sadly, that's not the case. I bet you would. Well, just to say you're amazing. I mean, that's that's, uh, <laughs> that's that's good enough. So it is. And when I was doing the research, we swapped some emails. You said somewhere in the uh, information you provided that you've got, or the archive has got, over a hundred kilometres of archive material stretching back to approximately a thousand years of history. Yeah. How is it possible in the centre of the city of London, the most famous city in the world possibly, with that depth and breadth of information, that so few people have possibly heard of it? How, how is that possible? I think it's because generally possibly archives don't get as much publicity. Maybe you don't shout about it as much as maybe when you go to a museum. And to be honest, most people come to an archive to do research. So often I'm asked, well, what's the difference between a museum, say, and an archive? And actually, all of us go to museums. We have fantastic exhibitions we go and see. And then we leave, whereas archives tend to be a place where you want to come and look at something. You're doing a PhD, you're doing your family history, you're doing the history of your house, you're doing your own personal background, and you want to come and do research. So we tend to have possibly fewer people who visit us, but they come and stay for the whole day or the whole week. And to get really sort of really down and in detail with the stuff that we've got. So is there an argument then to call what you do a museum rather than an archive, which might attract more people from a marketing perspective? Um, or is that, or is that, is probably that dumbing not. You down, I think it's probably, <laughs> it's not dumbing you down. Um, I think it's more a case that archives do slightly different things than museums do. And um, most of what we do is both 
if you like, preserve this this part of London, the nation's heritage, preserve archives that people need to look at. And you've only got to look in the news for many examples of that, as well as provide the resources for people to come and do that research. But on the other hand, we do make ourselves more available through schools work, social media work, events, exhibitions, online talks, that whole range of things as well. And I think more and more people are finding us online and certainly since lockdown as well. That's interesting, actually. So because you have an online, people can access the archive or parts of the archive online through collections and so on, the digital format of the archive. So have you found there's been an uplift in interest in what you do through through lockdown? We have. You know, sadly, we had to close to the public for a while. We're now reopened. But actually, Every single time we do a talk, we do a seminar, webinar, we get hundreds of people attending. Whereas in the past, if we did that on, on, as an on-site talk, we get 30 or 40 people and it's a different experience. And we still want to do on-site, but actually the reach is now international. People are finding us from all over the world. That's really interesting. Well, as they say, you know, one man's meat is another man's poison. You know, what, what what's bad for some is good for others. So you're obviously reaping some some benefit from COVID, unfortunately. And, and I've no doubt that, that COVID itself will at some stage in the future be represented in your archives. I've no, I've no doubt. When it we look will. Back at it. it will. Everything that's being recorded now, whether it's, you know, notices in a news agent saying, why you can't come in or it's what a local authority is doing or the gov- government's doing. And it'll probably be the first national issue where it's been completely digital. So yes, there will be things printed, there'll be paper, but actually we've got to make sure we record the digital impact of what we're having, whether it's emails, whether it's tweets, whatever it is. So is this something you, you, you're you actively thinking about even now uh, as we're in the midst of covid for example with yes we are yeah we're actually doing it i mean both within my own organization the city of london corporation what have we been doing to manage covid you know what preparations have we done what management have we done whether it's to do with street cleaning or archives whether it's animal welfare center or Hampstead heath how have we dealt with covid in all those situations as well as how have individuals responded to it both with us and more generally. Fascinating. So I've got to ask you, Jeff, how, how on earth does someone get involved in becoming an archivist? Because look, look at your uh, your CV or your bio, which you kindly sent over. First of all, I sh- should point out, you, you, you're not a born and bred Londoner, but you are um, you are one of our own now. You've, leave, you've lived here, mo- well, I think since, what, the 80s, since 86? The 80s. I am an adopted Londoner. Adopted so while, Londoner, that's what I'm my, my heart is still in Lancashire, in Liverpool, where I was born and brought up. And that's where all my sporting allegiances are. My home is London and I've lived here most of my life. So, yeah, I count myself as a Londoner. Well, you, I think I think you've lost your Lancashire accent. I certainly have. I certainly have. Yeah, yeah. So you, you, your sporting allegiance is what? You must be from rugby, the rugby league sort of. Well, rugby league Wigan, where I was born. Uh, Manchester United, uh, where I was no, near where I was brought up. Lancashire Cricket Club. Those are my... Those are my teams, I'm afraid. Uh, well, it, it would be remiss of me not to say that I'm a Spurs fan, so maybe we, we, we won't. We won't I think we that. might need to draw a veil over that. Um, <laughs> well, <but. laughs> having, having suffered for so many so many decades, um, we'll, 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 we'll gloss over that one. <laughs> I'll, just sit here and, I'll just sit here smugly for the next time. You know, I think you should. Time. <laughs> I think you should. So how does a chap from Wigan get, get involved in becoming an archivist and end up managing probably the most famous archive, you know, in certainly in this country, if not Europe and the world? Well, I think initially I kind of fell into it. So I did a classics degree. So all my academic life was around, you know, ancient Rome and ancient Greece. And to be honest, I don't know about graduates nowadays, but I got to the beginning of my third year and I wondered, what on earth am I going to do with a classics degree? And so I started looking for careers. And one of the things that attracted me in archives was the fact that you could use Latin in a very rarefied atmosphere of 
Latin documents and that kind of thing. And that's what started attracting me to what you might do in running archives. And also, and I've still got it, I read one of those kind of promotional bits of literature from somebody who was an archivist about why he had become an archivist. And he said the best thing was you suddenly move from dealing with Tudor manuscripts to having to make sure the toilets work. And I thought, not that I'm dead keen on managing toilets, but actually that balance between the practical and the historical, looking at fantastic historical material, but then making available for people to research and opening those doors, opening those doors for an eight-year-old schoolgirl to somebody who's in their 90s doing their family history. And that's what got me initially enthused and excited about being an archivist. If you'd asked me when I was 90 what an archivist did, I wouldn't have known and I might not have cared. But actually, by the time I was 23, I was probably hooked. And so that's how I started, really. So do you remember your first sort of visceral experience of going to a museum or an archive and thinking, wow, you know, this this is fascinating. Not only is this history, but this is this is physical history, you know, which I can feel and touch and get, you know, an emotional connection with. I think it was almost my first job, which was in Worcester Cathedral. And it was almost where people believe archivists live. You know, they don't live in modern high-tech buildings and work for Shell or the government. You work in a medieval cathedral and you walk up a spiral staircase and you have a huge key that's about the size of my hand. But the fascinating thing was that I was the only person there and Worcester Cathedral has got amazing medieval archives, you know, about the monastery that was there in the Middle Ages and just un unrolling these accounts of the monks from 1400 and you could touch them. And it was that physical reality. However much you can do things online, touching an archive and understanding you know, making that contact with somebody who wrote it 800 years ago is something it's hard to forget. Yeah. And do you still get that same buzz today as you, you did all those years ago? I do. And I think it's something about now being able to show and tell when we've got our amazing, you know, our special treasures, you know, out for display and people come to see them and they say, that's Magna Carta, or that little document is a thousand years old, and it's the earliest thing we've got, and they can see the real thing. No, it it, it can it can physically give you goosebumps sometimes. Yeah, I can can well imagine. So you worked at uh, Lambeth Palace Library it was one of your early roles, and then you moved to the City of London. I mean, you moved straight to the Metropolitan Archive from where you've been pretty much ever since. I have. My first job was actually in County Hall, which now is usually known as the building next to the London Eye, but of course was the home of the Greater London Council. And I was appointed to work there just after it had been abolished in the 80s to help amass the archive of the Greater London Council and before that, the London County Council. And I was there for about four years working on collecting this modern archive together, uh, which is, that was my first dip into London government. When you say you were doing it, was that you or part of a team? Or you were heading up a team? or We were part of a team. I was the deputy in a team that was working with the residuary body that was winding up the affairs of the GLC, working out who did he give Hampstead Heath to, to look after. And what we were doing was working with that organisation, working out what records and documents and files went to the London boroughs, what could be kept in an archive and what you didn't need to keep anymore. And the thing was, we amassed about 12 miles of archives in four years. So it was very much kind of the Amazon-style archiving of its day, really. So you, do you have to read every document that's, that comes across your desk or you or one of your colleagues on the team to determine its importance and significance? At that stage... Not really, because when you're dealing with 20th century papers, it's really hard to do that. And we had a lot of pressure of time. So what we had to do was really look at where the documents had come from and take 
all of the files from a particular department or a team and maybe not everything else. So as a silly example, maybe you would not take the files of all the people who ordered stationery for the GLC. No. Fair but you might take the files of the people who looked at traffic policy and cycle lanes and the like. And how did you develop a green agenda in 1980s London or better provision for women, the Women's Equality Unit? You had to keep that. It was critical to the way London was developing. But some of the more documents about just making things happen, you had to make that kind of decision at that time. Because you can do your head in reading every piece of literature material that crosses your desk. I mean, even in the course of having a look at some of the stuff that we were, we're going to talk about for today's conversation, it's so broad and you can go broad, you can go deep. You can just, you can basically drive yourself nuts, can't you, with, with, with detail? You can, and you could lose yourself. You can lose, you know, lose yourself in the trees and never see the wood. And it's really the issue that if anybody doing research nowadays on 20th and 21st century history has got to deal with, there's too much information that you've, you've got to try and sift it down and work out what you need. If you go back a thousand years, there's only three documents. So, of course, you keep everything because everything might be valuable. Nowadays, you just can't do that. You can't manage it. You couldn't read everything. Then you had information, disinformation. Now you've got news and fake news. You've got to sift out fact, fact from fiction. And you've got so much news. How do you determine what is fake and what is real? Where has it come from and so on? And just the sheer amount of information. I was told once that the Hadron Collider at CERN creates enough data if you put it on DVDs to go from here virtually to the moon in a day. Now, that's just mind-blowing. Yeah, it's just insane, isn't you know? it? Absolutely crazy. Yeah. yeah. So from there, you moved to – you actually came to the LMA from there. I did. So originally, I was in a team working with, with LMA, but based at County Hall, moved to the Clerkenwell site, which is where we are now in the 90s, and then went through a number of jobs before, before eventually I was appointed director seven years ago. Yeah, congratulations. Well, even bigger congratulations are now OBE as well for your uh, Yes, that was completely <laughs> out of the blue, and I'm not still not sure I, I really believe it. But that's as much about the work of, yes, it's what I've done, but actually what the archive's done. And to be honest, you know, one of the reasons for accepting it was the fact that it shows the importance of what LMA and the city has done to save these archives, you know, over not just us, but our predecessors 100 years ago, 500 years ago. Mm. So have you been up for your investiture? No, sadly, sadly, I'm afraid COVID put it on hold. So I've got the document, I've got, but I haven't got the badge yet. So, So we'll wait for that. It will come. It will come. Yeah, but, um, fingers fingers crossed. Well, fingers it's, it's crossed. a wonderful it's a wonderful achievement. Congratulations. So, I well, you suggested that uh, out of the uh, the hundred kilometres of uh, archive material, <laughs> I asked you to pick uh, a couple of topics that um, the LMA has got under its wing, uh, and you've come up with such a broad uh, selection, and in no particular order although let's let's treat them chronologically let's just have, just take us through some of the uh some of the things that you've got there that um will be of interest to the listeners obviously and probably the most famous of all is the magna carta which goes back uh God, I remember my history goes back 1067 no no 12 12 1215 was the original one and this is what i had to do back in 2015 when it was the 800th anniversary because the city has a Magna Carta, but then so is Salisbury Cathedral, so is Lincoln Cathedral. The British Library's got two. And so the first questions have always been, why are there so many Magna Cartas? Is there one original? And then they kind of photocopied a few others. And that's not the case. And I could take the whole of your podcast, Steve, just talking about Magna Carta, but I won't. But actually... The Magna Carta is fascinating because there are all sorts of stories. And we talked about, you know, 
people relating to it when they see it physically. And that's what they can do. And they did in 2015 with our city Magna Carta, because it's probably the best preserved of every Magna Carta that exists. And there are, there are about 13 for the 12th century, 13th century alone. But ours has the great benefit of having a kind of medieval posted note attached to it. So we've actually got the document, the covering note that sent our Magna Carta to the sheriffs of London saying, I've done my bit, now make it happen. Because it's one thing King John sticking his seal on it in 1215, but what happened next? How did how did you and I get to know about it? How did we undertake to carry out what it said? Well, inevitably, it was sent to everybody who had authority in the kingdom to make it happen. And that's what we got for the city. So, f- first of all... As a school kid, obviously everybody knows the term Magna Carta, but yeah, yeah. my understanding as a school kid was that there was only only one Magna Carta. It wasn't until later on in life I appreciated there was more than one. So, yeah. a couple of questions: What does Magna Carta actually mean, and what does it what does it signify? What were the principles behind the, the Magna Carta for for London specifically? Well, for Ma- Magna Carta, it really, really means a big deed, uh, a big document. And in fact, if you'd ask King John what was it called? He will not call it Magna Carta. It only became later known as Magna Carta when they split it into two a few years later and they put all the clauses about what you could or couldn't do in the forest into one charter. This is the whole Robin Hood story, whether you could kill deer in the forest and put all the other clauses in the other charter and the other charter was bigger than the forest charter, so they called it the Big Charter. However, in the Big Charter, there was an important clause about London, and it was in the 1215 Charter, it's in the 1297 Charter, and it's why London and why we have our Magna Carta, because London's rights and privileges were guaranteed by Magna Carta. It may not now be the most important clause, but it was the most important clause for the city, because the city was one of those power brokers when Magna Carta was being signed or being sealed and agreed. But generally, Magna Carta was a peace treaty. It was a deal done between the aristocracy, the barons and the crown about the rule of law and about what the king could or couldn't do, basically. And it was trying to right wrongs and make clear certain legal provisions, which is why you get the most famous clause about the fact that no man will be imprisoned without the rule of law or without the judgment of his peers, i.e. jury trial. And that's the one that now has echoed down the centuries and we enshrine. It's what we all think of when we think of as Magna Carta. Fabulous. And in terms of documentation, what you've physically got in the archive, is this the document that that was, I don't know if it still is on, on display at the Guildhall? It has been on display. We can't display that kind of document all the time because it would it would get damaged. It has been on display. The one we had most recently was our William Charter, which is the earliest document that we have in the archive. And it's the earliest document about London's history that we have as Londoners. You know, it's one of our founding documents for the city. And this this is the one that goes back to 1067. This is the 1067 document. It's a tiny little document from William the, William the Conqueror, William I, to the city saying, it's all right, guys, I won't burn you down. I'm going to respect the rule of law. Well, it doesn't actually say that. That's what it means. That's what it implies. And, and what, what language is that written in? Well, interestingly, it's written in Old English, which is not his language, and it's not Latin, which was the official language. It was the language of the people he'd beaten, the Anglo-Saxons. It was a political use of language. It was using, he was trying to be, this was the velvet glove on the iron fist. And this little document, which is six inches by two inches, has got more political spin in it than a whole session of Brexit Parliament. <laughs> I guarantee. 
Are you guaranteed? Guaranteed. Fascinating. Fascinating. Uh, I'll tell you, the archive for Brexit is going to be something interesting to look back that, on in years' time, is isn't it? Yes. If we, ever, if we ever get to the end of that one. Indeed. Well, that, that's wonderful. I just I just love that. The next topic you chose to, to mention was you put it under the heading Relations with America um, and a letter from the American Congress in 1775. Tell us a bit about that and what, what's the significance of that from a London perspective? From a London perspective, this, this is really fascinating because it's, a, it's at one point another document that talks about London as a world city, London as an international city. Even the, that 1067 document talks about the French and the English living in London. This is about the city's relationship with America Critically, 1775, just at the start of the American War of Independence. This is a letter which is on display, public display, at the moment at the city's Guildhall Art Gallery and will be on display for the next six months at least. And what it is, it's a letter from the Philadelphia Congress to the City of London, signed by John Hancock, who became the first signatory to the Declaration of Independence, thanking the city for its support of the American colonists against King George III. And that's something that if you ask most people, they would not believe. They would assume that the City Corporation fully supported the Crown in the issue of the crown versus the American colonists. And this wasn't the case. Yeah. This wasn't the case. Why was that? Why Why is that sort of skewed version? I think typically it's because the city wanted to maintain good trade relations with America, as it does nowadays and as it is in all its negotiations around what will happen post-Brexit. But particularly with America, there was great commonality between London and the city-states and states in America about maintaining good relations and good trade. And a war was just simply bad on many, many levels. It was bad politically. It was bad for the people of both countries, but it was particularly bad for trade. And so that's an area where the city was promoting the American colonial rights in a London context. That's interesting. And the timing of that is interesting because I believe this this month, certainly this year, is 400 years from the sailing of the Mayflower. Uh, it is indeed. Yeah. yeah. So w- was this on display as part and parcel of the Mayflower celebrations? It is indeed. And there are other right. documents about the Mayflower that are on display in the Guildhall Art Gallery. There is a very small heritage gallery that we have there. And that's where we often will have Magna Carta on display or the William Charter or indeed the American letters or indeed our title deed with Shakespeare's signature on it, which isn't something I mentioned, Steve, but is just another bit of a London's history that we casually mention at LMA. No, it's fascinating. I've, I've interviewed a number of guests recently I'm in, in connection with the Mayflower. Um, Mark Wheatley, who's a um, city councillor. Indeed, you, yes. You, you, you may know Mark. A couple of other characters, not least the author, uh, Simon Target, who wrote this book, New World Inc. I don't know if you're familiar yes. with that. Yeah, fascinating topic in its own right. And again, we could we could go off on many tangents, but uh, I, I, I want to touch on some of the wonderful topics that you cover. Next, and I think this is a topic that is very dear to your heart because you actually worked at uh, Keats House, is you, you, you've got the archive for the poetry of John Keats. We have, yeah. It's, or, the, it's... or Keats House. Yeah, it's absolutely amazing. So one of the jobs I did was Keats House was taken over by the City Corporation in the late 1990s from the London Borough of Camden. And eventually we managed it together with the archives. And so I had two jobs. At that point, I was head of our public services, our kind of outreach team. And so we worked on developing Keats House as a place for more and more people to visit, doing a big refurbishment of an early 18th century, 19th century house that was never still meant to be building, um, survived 200 years down the line, and look after the amazing collection of artif- archives and books that were collected when Keats House was saved for the nation and turned into a museum just after the First World War. And it was a, an absolutely 
fascinating project to working on because I'd always been interested in romantic poetry as a kind of just a general interest. And then to be given the job of actually running a house where this most famous poet in England lived was just too good to be true, really. Oh, remarkable. I'm, I'm ashamed to say, as someone who lives, who's lived in North Wales, has lived in North West London for m- most of my adult life, I've never actually visited Keats House, which after all is in Hampstead, isn't it? It's in Hampstead. It is now open to the public again. You can go there and... You know, through this podcast, I would just encourage everybody to go there. And most particularly because next February is the bicentenary of John Keats's death. So there are going to be all sorts of events online and physically taking place. And it's going to be a great year for Keats House and for John Keats. So that's wonderful. And you kindly sent, I don't know what you call it, a copy, a facsimile of a, of a letter he wrote to his, was it his lover? It was his fiance, next door neighbour. Yeah. What's the significance of this, and what, what what does it actually say? Because it's difficult for me to to read that. It's it's quite difficult to read. It was written by John Keats himself um, when he was living. If you ever go to Keats' house, it actually looks like one house, but it was designed as a semi-detached property. And he was renting a room in one half, and his fiance was living in the other half with her mother. And he was very ill at the time he wrote the letter. And literally, it went out of his front door by his friend. He took it round the garden and put it through the letterbox at the other half of the house to his fiancée. And basically, it's saying, I'm really sorry we can't meet at the moment. He was he was actually suffering from tuberculosis, which eventually killed him some months later. But he was saying, I can't come round, but I'm going to kiss the letter that you sent me because it's I'm going to kiss it instead of you. And he's really saying, sorry, I can't see you at the moment. And of course, it's got extra resonance at the moment with all of us, our friends and family that we can't see at the moment, that we have to email or Zoom or talk to where we're saying, I wish I could see you, but I can't. So it's absolutely amazing. And it came up for auction while I was at Keats House. It's one of the few letters of John Keats that's still in private hands. And we were able to purchase it with funding from the National Lottery, which is some educational work. And it now sits in the archives and it goes on display. And it's a real physical letter. You can read the letter sometimes in the house where it was written and you can see the letterbox through which it was posted. Wow. Well, I, I, I feel privileged just to have the photocopy in my hand, so to actually see see the original. So, I mean, his, his fiance was uh, she went by the uh, wonderful name of Fanny Braun. She did. Just... She did. <laughs> they never got married, did they? They never got married. Sadly, they that we have her engagement ring at the house, but he got too ill with tuberculosis, and he was taken to Italy to try and recover. Although he knew, because he had medical training, he was going to die. But he went to Italy. Sadly, he had to go into quarantine in Italy, because in Naples, they had a plague outbreak. So again, resonance with what we're going through today. He moved to Rome, and very sadly, in April, in February 1821, he died very close to the Spanish steppes, where there is now a museum to him and Shelley in the room where, in the house where he died. How is there? So there's something else, something else I never knew. <laughs> so he died. He died abroad with a good friend of his who went to be with him. But he died not famous and not with any money. So was he buried in Rome? Was he buried? He's buried abroad? in Rome. He's yeah. buried in the Protestant Cemetery in Rome. And on his gravestone is a very famous line where she says, "It's a, my name will be writ on water." In other words, I'll be forgotten. But he wasn't, thankfully. Absolutely. Let's take a very quick break just to remind you, if you love the show and would like to get involved, grab some cool stuff, get shout outs on the show, have us create your very own London Legacy show, or even meet up with us in London for a coffee or something stronger. Just head over to www.patreon.com forward slash your London Legacy. Okay, let's carry on with the show. And in terms of the archive that 
London Metropolitan LMA has. You've got all, all his written material, everything there, all his written material. We don't have all his written material. We have some of his letters and letters written to him. The majority of his letters are in the British Library or in the States. But we also have books about him, an amazing library about his life and about how the house was saved for the nation because it was going to be demolished and rebuilt as flats in the 1920s and it was saved by the nation. People like Thomas Hardy put his name to an appeal to raise the money to buy the house to turn it into a museum. And we got that kind of letter as well. In fact, Thomas Hardy wrote a poem about visiting Keats' house. Poem about a poet. Exactly. Wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. So we're moving, we're, we're coming forward into more contemporary times now, and you've got a lot of material about um, education and the School Board for London, which you believe is celebrating 150 years uh, anniversary since the formation. Is it this year? It is indeed this year, yeah. Talk, talk to us a bit about that then, if you I'll will. I'll talk about that. Actually, in 1870, we had the first Act of Parliament in this country establishing a form of universal primary school education. They called it elementary education in those days. And what it did was it said that if there aren't enough schools in an area, a school board will be set up to build new schools. And in London, there was such a problem that they actually mandated an organisation to be set up called the School Board for London, whose job was to fill in the gaps of education that wasn't being provided by the voluntary sector. Up to then, education had been provided by private sector, the voluntary sector, occasionally some of the workhouses, but there was no standard system. And of course, London at that stage had huge numbers of children who had no education whatsoever. So a board was set up, first elected in 1870. It was the first election where women could vote on an equal par with men and women could be elected to the school board for London. And two women were, including Elizabeth Garrett Anderson who was famous in many, many other areas, notably medicine. But she was one of the first women elected to School Board for London, along with Thomas Huxley, who was a great champion of Darwin. And um, he's the one who had a very famous debate with Samuel Wilberforce in the 1860s, who was a clergyman who denied evolution. And Wilberforce, uh, sorry, Huxley wiped the floor with him uh, in today's parlance. Anyway, this board was created and built in less than 30 years for over 460 schools in London, many of which still survive today. If you or I walk around central Inner London, you will see a former or an existing board school. You can't miss them. And some of them are still schools. Are these the old sort of uh, Victorian red brick? The Victorian red and white brick. If you go along and you see SBL there on the, t on the, um, on the outside of the school, you can amaze or bore your friends and family by saying, I know what that stands for, School Board for London or School London Board. You see, some would, some would say, oh, that, that's wonderful. If you look at those buildings, how historic. And some would say, why hasn't it been ripped down and something more, more, well, more well, suitable actually, for that? They were so well built that even when they stopped being schools, most companies that took them over rebuilt them as flats or offices. They actually, if you look at them, one of the things they did was build them to survive, build them to still be here. They certainly were solid, solid units, weren't they? Yeah, exactly. That's fascinating. So we've covered some of these sort of big generic topics, but you also cover within your remit very specific sort of individual and personal uh, archives as well. And you've mentioned one uh, character here who wasn't familiar to me uh, until you, you mentioned him, a gentleman called Cy Grant, who's got, uh, upon doing the little bit of research I did in anticipation, got the most amazing personal history. Just remarkable guy. Absolutely. And if anybody has not heard about him, you have just got to go on Google and look him up because even now I will not remember all the things he's done. You know, one of his main 
Hurley claim to fame is wrong. He was one of the first black officers in World War II in the RAF. He was, he became a prisoner of war. We have his flight diaries. After the war, he trained as a barrister. He was a professional actor. He may be known to some people as a man who performed calypso music on the BBC in the 1960s and popularised calypso music in a way before it got, if you like, a bad reputation when it did not because of Calypso itself, but he made Calypso a really popular musical heritage. And one of the things we've been doing now is working with current Calypso artists to to support them in what they're doing by giving them a bit of a showcase uh, to LMA. But also, and it's, it seems rather silly, but I first came across Cy Grant in the credits for one of those iconic 60s TV series, Captain Scarlet, because I knew the name. I saw the name, but I had no idea who Cy Grant was. But I knew him as the voice of Lieutenant Green in Captain Scarlet. Interestingly, and I didn't know this till later, Lieutenant Green was one of the first black puppet characters on British television, which I didn't know. But Cy Grant voiced Lieutenant Green but he did many, many other things. He became a rights campaigner for education, many, many other, you know, really active work. And we were approached um, by his family to take his archive in. Again, we got lottery funding to catalogue it and to do active community and educational work on the back of that. And that's why we've worked with people in the Calypso community. We've showcased his work as part of the centenary of the RAF a couple of of years ago. And he's critical to the work we do in expanding our work with the black and Asian community and all sorts of communities in London. And that's a whole other general piece of work that we've been doing actively for the last 20 years, but has become obviously much more to the forefront of everything we talk about and think about in London today. Beside Grant, you just you just got to go and see what he's done. Most amazing person. He's quite, quite a remarkable character. I'm just wondering, some of the other topics we've spoken about, obviously Magna Carta and London Education and Keats and things like that, are, are massive generic topics that you know affect everybody and are historical topics as well. When somebody approaches you, or a family or a trust approach you about a personality like Cy Grant, an individual who has far-reaching consequences, albeit within a much smaller sphere of influence, how do you make a decision about whether that's just interesting from a you know a local perspective or whether that's big enough and broad enough and interesting enough for you to take on board is, is it you you have a board I don't, who makes that decision and what, what's the parameters for that well those are some of the basic and most important questions we have to face as archivists if you like as professionals in our field Here at LMA, uh, we do have a team, a collections team, that works on that. They are dedicated to acquiring material and they're making sure it's catalogued and made available to people who want to use it. Um, So they're the team who would we who would first deal with that. What we would tend to do, we have our collecting criteria and there are some broad criteria. Obviously, there has to be a London connection. We're an archive that deals with London, not solely London, because of some of the examples I've given, London stretches around the world. And so it doesn't only have to have a London connection, but it has to have a London centre to it. It also has to be something nowadays that doesn't just have a local connection to Hampstead or Lambeth or Haringey because there are reputable and good archives in all the London boroughs and they might well be the right place for that business archive or that charity archive or that personal archive. But if they have a a wider significance across more than one part of London, um, then that's the kind of thing we will be interested in. And then the other questions relate to the quality of the archive. What is there? Is it something that we can make more of and is valuable for people in all sorts of different ways, for researchers, for school groups, for whoever, to be able to build on and use? So those are the kind of main criteria. 
uh, we look at. What we also do is then try to see where we can get, where there's the potential for extra resources to support us in doing that. If it's a business, they may be able to give us funds for the cataloguing or conservation of documents. If it's something like SciGrant, we might go to the lottery or the Wellcome Trust to get funding to expand what we do in those areas as well. So those are some of the general criteria we use. Uh, that's interesting. So so where does most of your funding come from? Is it mostly through voluntary donations and trusts and the lottery fund, funds like the lottery, National Lottery and Heritage Funds? Most of our funds come directly from the City of London Corporation. They are our parent body. We are part of the City of London Corporation. One of the reasons we hold the William Charter from 1067 is it's part of the City Corporation's archives, which we now manage in a digital form for what's being produced in year 2020. So they provide us with most of our funding, but we have been successful, but we need to go out for extra funding, either from the private sector or from donors like the Wellcome Trust, the Lottery, to add to what we do, to give us those resources, both to bring material in, but to do outreach, to work with groups, to develop their stories, because we're not just here to tell our stories, and I've told you a few of the stories we have, but actually it's for anybody to develop their own stories based on this fantastic resource. We are there to open those doors to people, to make connections, whether it's a community group, a charity, to develop what they want to say, because it's it's an archive for Londoners as well as being about Londoners. So the trick is not just to have it like a, a, a dead archive, like a dead language, but to bring it to life so that everyone can access it and, and make it part of people's experience. Absolutely. And I think historically people have felt, I've got to have a PhD to be allowed into an archive, um, or I've got to be doing my family history. And actually, that's not true at all. You can experience an experiment, you ex exhibition, you can come and do some research, you can take some materials, you know, in digital form away and create your own project. So, yeah, it's got to be alive. I completely agree. And you mentioned the word outreach. What, what form does that take? Is that going into schools and to different organisations? Yeah, it's doing exactly that. So developing projects to go into schools or to visit, have school visits. You know, hopefully in the not too distant future, we'll have school visits back on the curriculum again. But sadly, at the moment we don't. But allowing school children to come into the archives, to see archives and to understand what archives are and how they help you create history and write history. It's really crucial because like all things, it helps you understand the history of a subject, but also those really important things about what is evidence, what is fake news, what is real evidence, how can you judge things from what's written down, and what do you build your stories based on that. So we do education work on all the kind of curriculum subjects you might imagine, but those might involve science. We have the archives of Tower Bridge. We can do the sound, the engineering of Tower Bridge. Um, we have sewer subject, sewer archives. We can talk about super sewers or how Bazogels built the sewers in the 1860s. But we also do community outreach work. So we have a lot of partnerships with external groups. They might be in a faith community. They might be in a community based on what part of the world you've come from. It might be based on uh, a BAME community. It might be based on LGBT community or any kind of community or individual to develop stories and projects. Well, you've just touched on one of the, the topics we, I, I want to sort of start to wind up on. And one of them is the LGBTQI community work that you're doing and you also sort of loosely connected as well with the uh the project work that you've been doing on um is it the nhst organization uh the national hiv story which yeah. i looked at their website just before which you can't kindly direct me to which just phenomenal just talk to us a little bit about the work you've been doing in, in both those sort of areas well, to take the, the LGBTQI area more generally, again, an area that has been underrepresented within the archives, 
yes, we have traditional archives that very often will talk about people within that broad community and communities in very pejorative ways, in court records, in local authority records, and certainly from an institutional angle. And clearly, one of the things we've been doing is uncovering those stories because those stories are there. What we also wanted to do, and particularly fairly recently in a project called Speak Out, and you can Google that and find a website, is to is to incorporate contemporary voices from communities within the archive. So oral testimony, oral history from people who have experienced coming out in a black community in Brixton or what you might do in running a gay club in Haringey. Those kind of stories, which are vitally important to sit alongside historical written archives. And so Speak Out was an externally funded project, again by the lottery, to allow us to do that, but to create a community who could then go out and do more of that kind of work. And what that project led us on to what was originally called AIDS since the 80s, and now, as you say, the National HIV Story Trust, which is basically founded around two filmmakers who created a huge number of interviews around the AIDS in the 80s experience, people who had experienced it themselves or as carers or from the medical profession and what their experience has been. And what we want to do in partnership with them is to both save this material because the the main story that has come out of that is people who had experienced um, that, the AIDS epidemic, call it what you will, that their voice would be forgotten, that it would be brushed under the carpet. And one of the things we can say is it will not be brushed under the carpet. It will be remembered and we will continue to build on that by adding to those stories. And we had a reception at the Guildhall to mark the handover of this archive and the, the first digital archive we've ever taken in. And we had many members from the community at that reception and many speakers from the community. And the stories that were heartfelt stories about their experiences and the fact that now their experiences are there to be used as the raw material for the history of this period, and they will not be forgotten. It's no, no. just impressive. It's such an important topic, which has, as you say, been swept under the carpet or not spoken about widely or people, you know, don't want to talk about it from different communities. I just clicked on the, the link, www.nhst.org.uk. I don't know if there's a link directly from the LMA website as well, but I, if you just go on there and watch one or two of the little videos, uh, the taster videos on there, there is very, very moving, very powerful film work. Yeah. So yeah. thoroughly recommended. And if you've got that archive, fantastic, because that'll be kept there for posterity. That's wonderful. So before we wrap up, how do people find out about, get in touch with you, find out more, what are your social media? Because it's so important, the work that you do, quite clearly. We, we've just touched on, I don't know, not even half a kilometre of the 100 kilometres that, you, that you've got there, a fraction of a kilometre. And it's so interesting. And there's so many, it doesn't matter what topic of interest you, you like, you, you'll find something there to fascinate you. There are many ways, Steve, and depending on anybody's interest, you can. The key thing is London Metropolitan Archives. That's the thing to put into Google. Um, you can find us. You can find us on the City Corporation website. We have a catalogue online if you want to dive deeply into what we've got. On that, we've got quite a lot of our documents that are digitally available. A lot of our family history is available through um, our the Ancestry website. But we're there on Flickr. We're there on Facebook. We're there on Twitter. We're there on Instagram. You can find us through all those outlets. And depending on whether you just want to see what we're doing on Instagram at the moment, or what our sound archive project is. And my colleagues here will kill me if I don't mention our sound archive. Go for you it. You can go on that and find our Saturday matinee film archive um, on our YouTube channel. So there are all sorts of hashtags and links in to all of those. But if your your listeners just want to put in London Metropolitan Archives and go to what you prefer, YouTube, Twitter, you'll find us and you'll find more stories than I can tell you about in a month's worth of these podcasts. 
Absolutely brilliant. I, I, I've thoroughly enjoyed our chat. I've enjoyed being put in touch with you and the little bit of research I've done on the website and all the different directions it takes you in. You can go in a hundred different you know, rabbit holes and educate yourself and fascinate yourself for the rest of your life and still not get past the second kilometer. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. I haven't. <laughs> so, so, I mean, congratulations again for your OBE. I mean, that's just amazing. And that was in the Queen's Honours List. That was in the New Year's Honours List. It was in, absolutely. So that's why I have got the certificate and I have the letters, but I haven't had the ceremony yet. But I'm sure that will come. No, that'll be amazing. And that, that'll have to go in the archives as well, no doubt. Yep, I'm sure it will. <laughs> have there been, out of interest, I mean, have there been any other sort of well-known famous people who've worked in the in the archive as well or work with you presently not really we tend to a bit like the lma itself we're kind of we're kind of hidden in it if you like so i think if you asked how many famous archivists there are it might be the quiz it might be the pointless answer um on <laughs> or the, the million dollar question or the yeah. million dollar question i'm afraid and are, are you politically neutral you don't have any political affiliations as an organization obviously not as an organization city of london yeah. No, that's right. I mean, the City of London itself is not a party political organisation. Clearly, it's done all sorts of things in its history, but we are not, which is why we were taking the archives of any organisation. We actually have the archives of all three major political parties in London over the years. So we are not exclusively one or any. Absolutely. Right. Well, before we go, uh, as you know, and being an adopted Londoner with one with a huge breadth of knowledge of the uh, of London, as you no doubt have, I ask all my guests at this point in the uh, in our conversation to mention one or two places in London that are particularly uh, personal or relevant or interesting to them. So I know you said you had a, you had hundreds you could choose from. So give, give us a couple. I'll give you a couple. I have <laughs> narrowed it down to two. I mean, the first. It's a bit like the Desert Island Discs one, you know, if you could take the whole of a symphony rather than an undertones two-minute song, which would you take? Cause, so by that I mean I would probably take the Thames as one of my, the place I love to be. For about, you know, 15 years of my life, I worked on the Thames, but I could narrow down the Thames to two snapshots, if you like, two photos. One is... The first place I worked on the Thames was Lambeth Palace and my room in a medieval tower looked down the Thames and I looked all the way down to Vauxhall Bridge and the sunlight on it on a winter's morning was like a Turner, Turner painting. It was just amazing. You could, I could have stood there for hours until my boss came and found me. But if I looked the other way, I'd find the Thames Barrier. And to me, one of the, the Thames Barrier is one of the unsung architectural and engineering, you know, fantastic buildings in London. You know, the fact that it's, it looks beautiful. It was built in the 80s to work for a century. They designed it to still be going in the late 21st century, even if they hadn't thought about climate change then. It's just, it's just fantastic. Let's hope we don't have to use it in anger. <laughs> Absolutely. But it has been used and it saved us. So that's, if you can count that as one, Steve, that's one. And my second one is actually where I live in um, the Dulwich area. Bizarrely, I came to London. I found a flat in, in Dulwich and I've stayed there all my life. And this is not a plug for a commercial enterprise that I'm going to mention. I'm going to mention my local bookshop. It's called Dulwich Books. It's in West Dulwich and it is the most serendipitously brilliant bookshop you will ever find. By that, I mean, you can go in looking for a present for somebody and you will find it. You never knew that a particular book existed, but you find it there and it suddenly happens to be the best present you've ever wanted for a friend or the book you've ever wanted to buy yourself. It's tiny, but somehow it manages to do it time and time again. So my favourite bookshop. Sounds more fun than Amazon. It is. So, and they've worked throughout lockdown. They were amazing. But West Dulwich, brilliant. Sounds wonderful. When you turn up, they say, oh, here comes the archivist. <laughs> probably, <laughs> so, probably. Well, what's he, what's he after now? <laughs> yeah, but I've not been paid for this either. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Well, it's been a pleasure having you on the, on the podcast. Thank you ever so much, Jeff. Keep up the great work. I hope you get your OBE sooner rather than later. And I hope 
Queenie wipes it. She doesn't do them anymore, I don't think, does she? I think Probably she, she not, no. I Probably. think she leaves it to Charlie. Well, I hope he washes yeah. his hands and uh, <laughs> <laughs> you, don't get, you don't get too close. You, you socially distance. <laughs> Keep up the amazing work you do. It, it truly is a gem. And the more people, not just Londoners, that know about it, the better. And we can keep you working for another 20, 30, 40 years. Who knows? You're not Thanks. planning on retiring anytime soon. Not quite yet, I not hope. quite yet. It's been a great opportunity, Steve, to talk to you. Thanks. Good. Thank you very much indeed. I absolutely love creating Your London Legacy for you, and the feedback and testimonials are awesome. But as it grows, so it consumes more and more resources. So I've joined forces with Patreon, a really cool place where you can show your love and support from just as little as $2 a month as a silver Londoner, right up to $300 per month where you get the crown jewels. Each level of subscription opens up a host of exclusive extra goodies, events, bonus shows and sponsorship opportunities only available via, via Patreon. I do hope you'll continue to support what we're doing here and I'm so grateful for whatever you feel able to give. So please head over to www.patreon.com forward slash your London legacy. That's www.patreon.com forward slash your London legacy.